Hello, Latinos in Clinical Research. Welcome to another live event. If you missed us live, just subscribe to our website, latinosinclinicalresearch.com. To not miss out, you get emailed the direct Zoom link a day before these events, so you could save it to your calendar. We're also on LinkedIn, but it's best to subscribe so that you get the link directly in your inbox. Uh, we have a great episode today, a great session. Monica is going to introduce the three guests. But before we get into that, if you are watching live, all right, please feel free to answer que or ask questions. Feel free to chat. Feel free to unmute yourself or to leave a comment in the chat box. But if you are working at a place where you are afraid of asking certain questions, I would say just type it in the chat. Let us know to keep you anonymous. Otherwise, this is going to go on YouTube. So be mindful of that. And with that being said, Monica, take it away. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Latinos in Clinical Research webinar, live webinar. So today we have three extremely special uh, guests. Um, and I say that, uh, I mean, I, I'm not saying that lightly. They have a lot of experience. They have an amazing background. Uh, they all come from a different um, background professionally and also um, uh, heritage. So it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna get better. It's gonna get amazing. So we're gonna start with Johan. She is Puerto Rican background. She's been uh, working as an in, in engagement community for the past years. So she has a lot, a lot of experience in this. She has doing marketing. She's an expert in marketing and communications and, um, and advocates for diversity. So Welcome, Johan. Please tell us all about you. <laughs> thanks. thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here sharing with all of you and um, with this nice panel that we have here today. Um, Monica, when you approached me about this um, session and this interview and this opportunity, you had said, oh, I want you to, you know, tell us how you got in your career track and how you made it to the clinical trial space. And as I mentioned, I thought, wow, that, that has been a, a long winding uh, road from Umacao, Puerto Rico, all the way to North Carolina, where I am right now. So um, I wanted to tell you then uh, this story with uh, the main milestones in my career and the gems that I had gathered along the way. But I just wanted to clarify, I'm not from Puerto Rican background. I am Puerto Rican. I mean, <laughs> I was born and raised in Umacao, Puerto Rico and educated there. I came as an exchange student from the University of Puerto Rico to the University of South Florida, where I um, obtained um, a couple of degrees. My first was a bachelor's in communications with a concentration on public relations. And there's my, my first milestone happened after I graduated from USF. And I started my uh, first job after graduation for a small community newspaper. It was called the, uh, Suncoast, uh, the Suncoast News in Newport Ritchie. And the gem that I took from that job was that it, it, 
community newspapers are like a bullhorn for small communities that nobody cares about. So I learned how to be uh, a megaphone for the community, how to communicate the community needs. And um, that was to me very valuable because I was a community oriented person. I also learned how to access community leaders and how to get cooperation from community leaders. Something that was really interesting that I also learned from that job was how to take photos. Community papers are very short on staff. And so if you were a staff writer, you also have to take your own photos sometimes if the photographer wasn't available. And uh, so I learned originally, I wanted to take this, you know, have everything on the picture. And they're like, no, 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 no. You need to, we want faces. We want you to have, you know, a close-up. We want to see those, those, uh, those nice uh, expressions. So that was my first gem. My second gem was when I graduated from my MBA program also at USF. Um, I learned a lot of things there, but the one gem that I took is that you should not have business myopia, right? You, business myopia is when you are just um, concentrating on the short-term goals and you lose sight of your long-term goals and you lose sight of the, the needs of the populations in the case of the MBA program was your, your customers, right? But the populations that you're trying to reach. Don't, don't be myopic. The, the, the third milestone was after the MBA program, I started my own business. I was really young. I started a little store called Cositas y Mas. And we, I sold arts and crafts from Latin America. And uh, that was an amazing experience. I got a loan from the Small Business Administration when I was done. I, uh, was, I yeah, hate both that. the Republican. But, but believe me, there's, there's two. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought it was somebody asking a question. So I um, got a, I paid the loan. I had enough revenue and income to do well. And what I gathered, the little gem that I took from that one job was that when I unleashed my entrepreneurial spirit, I, I learned how to start something from scratch without you know, much help and finish it and complete it and, and make it happen and make it a reality, which has come in handy along you know, the way in many, in many jobs, especially now that I'm working for a startup. Um, my next milestone was my work at the St. Petersburg Times. I worked in the marketing, communications, and community relations department there. And that was, again, amazing. The Times, the St. Petersburg Times is now called the Tampa Bay Times. I'm sure you already know. And the people there were amazing. They're really, really high standards. The Times had won several Pulitzer Prizes even when I was, when I was there. Uh, the people there from the editors, copywriters, artists, graphic designers, again, very high standards. And I learned so much from them that today, the gem that I took from there was that content and context are both valuable. So your writing and the way things look in your presentation are both extremely valuable. And I applied that and uh, 
my colleague Monair that uh, you're gonna get to meet soon. She, she knows that that is something that I really paid a lot of attention to. Am I tiring you? You have any questions between up to here? Would you yeah, like not tiring to? at all? A very great uh, background, honestly. I'm, I'm kind of like absorbing it all at the moment, okay. but uh, please uh, feel free to continue. Okay, great. The Thank next um, big milestone after working at the Times, and I would be extremely remiss if I don't include this, is the fact that I became a mother. And motherhood to me has been the toughest job that I have ever had. Mothers, um, uh, they just are amazing. I, I learned how to work 24-7. Mothers do a little bit of everything. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen that viral video of this person that's hiring and they're asking people, well, you have to work 24-7. You're not going to get paid. You have to be as... Have you guys seen that video at all? They're interviewing for the mom. Yes. So it's a tough job. And uh, working under duress, it, it was just taught me a lot and how to balance my life as well. So the next job after the next milestone has been uh, getting my PhD. I got my PhD at NC State. Uh, I was very interested in health. When I had my children, they had eight of the main 10 food allergens, and I became very interested in health. And my parents, they were very young parents, but they were also aging. And even as they were young, uh, you know, getting older, but younger still, they started getting conditions like diabetes, which is very prevalent, as you know, in the Hispanic population, uh, not both of them, just my dad. But so I became very interested in health. And I wanted to be on the health track. And because communications was what I know, NC State had an opportunity for something called the CRDM, which was an interdisciplinary program. And as long as you did either communications, rhetoric, or digital media, you combined it with something else. And I wanted to combine it with health. And they had an excellent health track. I worked with excellent uh, People like uh, professors like Dr. Kami Kosenko and um, Dr. Chris Anson. And uh, I mean, everybody there was fabulous. Uh, uh, that gem that I took from there was to how to conduct high quality research. So that was my first, um, my first experience with research and the importance of research and, and how to do it well um, and with publications and Dr. Diana Danos, I, I wanted to um, also um, mention her. Um, so yeah, high quality research. So I had my experience with research which had served me very well, my publications, I've been published and, and know how to how to disseminate that kind of information in that format. Then uh, the next milestone was Duke. I went to Duke University and I worked at the Center for Community and Population Health Improvement. And the gem that I took from there was how to connect uh, investigators with community. Duke has some really great programs on uh, where they try to connect their investigators with community organizations that have similar interests. 
They also, uh, at Duke, I helped and, and, and led some programs where investigators gather and talked about themes and topics that were of importance to them, that they were trying to uh, get some answers and some programs on how to, that was called Research Works in Progress, which are programs for where you actually are an investigator and you get feedback from others on your work and your research work. And at Duke, I also uh, actually uh, made the grounds and the first uh, Population Health Improvement Awards under the CTSA grant. And, and that is still going today. So I'm very proud of that and how we accomplished that. My next gem, this is the uh, number eight gem, uh, was joining the UNC School of Nursing Mobile Health Clinic. At, uh, I absolutely love the uh, working at the UNC School of Nursing Mobile Health Clinic. This is a nurse-led clinic. They are saving lives every day. We served, and I still am an adjunct professor at the clinic. And what we do is that we provide health educations and screenings for people who are undergoing crisis situations. They may not have insurance or maybe underinsured. And uh, we identify people. Uh, just today, someone came to the clinic um, and this happens all the time, but there are people who come to the clinic and they have like 400 glucose levels and they have no idea that they have diabetes. I, that is just, it, just because they came to the clinic, now they have identified this condition and they can get treatment. Uh, the clinic functions just via grants and, uh, that we try to obtain from um, all kinds of entities and institutions. And the nurses are pretty much all volunteers and the students use the clinic as a clinical practice site, but everybody's there out of the goodness of their hearts. So I hold that clinic very dear uh, to me. And, and the, the gem that I take from the clinic is that we can make a difference, people. We can make a difference in people's lives and even if we make it one person at a time. Um, the clinic is also special to me because at the clinic, I, I see that access is important, but also other social determinants of health are important. And it reminds me, everybody that knows me knows that uh, my story of my grandparents, my grandparents were really uh, low economic background and they never like access to healthcare, but they didn't have a car. So that doesn't help you much if you have, you know, a doctor to go to, but La Guagua, the boss doesn't show up, right? Uh, and cannot take you to, to the doctor. So, uh, and now I'm here at Sidebridge, uh, I, where I am just putting all of these treasured throats of uh, little gems that I have gathered to practice. I, I, I joined Sidebridge uh, with having no clinical background, no uh, clinical research background, but I had contacted Chris Komalaski, who's the, the co-founder. And I said, Chris, I don't, I have, I think everything you need except for that, for that background that I think he saw that these combinations of skills were just amazing and he brought me in and I'm now 
the head of community engagement and trying to make sure that we are connecting patients to clinical trials and patients of racial and ethnic minorities and underserved populations. So those are my gems. <laughs> I hope that. Uh, Thank you. I think that's you are the perfect example of bringing your uh, skills and transferring them to the industry. A lot of people uh, have in their minds that the only way they could get into the industry is if they have a white coat <laughs> in their in their uh, background, right? Uh, or they have healthcare background or science background, but in reality. In the clinical research industry, we need all kinds of backgrounds like yourself, like uh, communications, marketing, PR. That is really important, especially now that we're trying to communicate and transmit that information to the population out there that has no idea about clinical research or have the wrong idea about it. All right. Uh, I, sorry, go ahead. I apologize. <laughs> Um, well, okay, so for your background, I found it very interesting because, as Monica said, the marketing aspect, but you also kind of had a version of clinical public health, and I liked how you mentioned, you know, uh, from your parents, right, uh, the background, because for me, uh, I came from, your great grandparents here, for me, for my, uh, where I'm from is a rural area, and during the time that I was in the clinical industry, I actually helped um, with the Don't Lose Hope nonprofit organization who actually got buses to Colonias. And I remember being very surprised because even as I was already living in a rural area, I still had no idea that there was some areas or sectors of these regions that literally have no access to any type mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, basic communication and or, you know, uh, travel transportation. So, mm -hmm. you know, given your background and kind of your almost 360 view of things, um, what do you think is one of the biggest aspects, uh, barriers in getting specifically to Latinos, right? Because um, it's not just all those aspects I just mentioned, but also the language barrier on top of that, right? So what do you feel as far as background? Yeah, so one of the things that we try to do at Cybridge and at the clinic is exactly that, is just to identify the needs of the community. And a lot of the times there are services out there that the community is not aware of. So one of the things that we need to do is let them know, hey, this exists and you can take advantage of it. A lot of the times we see a lot, um, we see many people that stop at the clinic that are uninsured that don't know that they can actually get uh, services from clinics that work on a sliding scale and that you know, they will charge them a lot less that they won't have to pay the $200 that some of the other clinics require. So I think just distributing information about these resources where people can get not only uh, their information about health, but also where you can get food, believe it or not, there are people that still have, you know, they live in places with food scarcity. So where they can get food and access to all those determinants of health that are impeding them to live uh, better lives like the rest of us. Agree, and I, and I actually personally feel that I think this is kind of where there might be some disconnect when it comes to, you know, the in-between between sponsor CROs and sites and then specifically in rural areas, because sometimes, you know, it's not just giving the site money, it's also ensuring that the site has the, you know, the resources and also the support for additional education to educate more people. And this is where I feel like the grassroots effects is, right? Outside of just schools, it's also getting to people within the workforce that have no idea about this and helping them 
facilitating them through education so that ultimately, you know, that can spread throughout the community, right? Because, I mean, um, it's like you said, it's just being able to get access to these individuals, these, these communities, um, and most of that is going to be through people within that region or that area. Correct. And a lot of one of the things that we try to emphasize is that we're genuine about what we are doing. We really care. So just having people that really care in your organization, I think that's important just because they are one, they're the ones that are going to want to make sure that things get done for the people, the people that need it. 100%. Thank you so, so much. I mean, that's a what you guys are doing is great. I love your your background. Your background is super substantial, and I think that we need more individuals with your background. It again, you know, it's not just as Monica said, just the clinical industry, but um, we need more people just to be able to kind of give the full 360 view, so that we can come together, collaborate, and figure ways to or better ways, uh, more newer ways to approach these issues. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I can say one more thing, uh, is the fact that. For us, community engagement is about developing awareness, is about educating people, it's about laying the ground for people to be receptive to clinical trials when you approach them about clinical trials. Right now, there is a lot of disinformation and there is a lot of misinformation out there. So Monera and I are out in the communities trying to set the record straight, trying to speak with people, um, informing them, getting them ready. So when the time comes and the opportunities come, they are not thinking I am a lab rat or I am a guinea pig. They're thinking, oh, I know about this. Oh, I know I can benefit from it. Well, now that you mentioned Monere, that's our next guest. <laughs> so we can uh, include uh, more of your you guys' work because you guys work together. So um, Monere it has also a very interesting background. She is Cuban-Jamaican. Uh, I think it's amazing. Uh, she's, uh, she is, um, well, she's actually Dr. Monere. She understands and advocates for the vital work helping uh, to provide access in health, to healthcare and addresses health disparities in clinical research. So please, Monere, introduce yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. Monica, thank you so much. I am so thrilled to be here with Johan and Marlini uh, for this uh, wonderful celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month. Thank you so much for the invitation. I am thrilled to be here. I'm hoping that you can hear me well. I'm going to turn up my sound just a little bit, just so that you can. Okay, perfect. Wonderful. So um, uh, you heard the wonderful uh, story of the background of Johan Um, Mine is not as eclectic. It's uh, pretty straightforward. (laughs) Um, So yes, my parents are from Jamaica and Cuba. And um, knowing that you have that strong heritage in your background, uh, what you definitely know you must do is throw your shoulders back, throw your chest forward and move forward. So uh, after earning my... um, master's in public health and my PhD, I went to work in a university because that's where PhDs work, right? They work in a university. So I was teaching um, in health programs in South Carolina and um, enjoying it 
And one thing that I definitely knew that I loved to do was to be an educator, especially in the public health area. So that's what I did for years, whether it was as an academic in the university, whether it was in nonprofits, uh, I worked in nonprofits. I also worked uh, on military installations. I worked at Fort Bragg and uh, I'm a veteran. So I worked at Fort Bragg and I also worked at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. But what I knew um, is that I was not as thrilled and happy and joyous as I thought I should be, especially having a master's degree and having a PhD and talking with my husband. He said, you know, you can do more. You mentor students all the time. You love being an educator. You love speaking to people in small groups, speaking to folks here in this webinar forum. I enjoy doing things like that. He said, you've got to find your love. Where is your love? And clearly, it's not what you're doing now. You're doing it. You're capable, right? So we have to sort of kind of look at, uh, you know, the difference between really focusing on what we love to do as far as our career and what we are capable of doing just going to work, right? So um, that's where I started my search. And my search landed me in clinical research. Uh, one of the greatest things that I have found, and this month actually, September, is my one-year anniversary of working in clinical research this month, um, is being able to bring all of my experiences from public health, all of my experiences from the classroom, all of my experiences working and mentoring students, um, as well as uh, colleagues who want to do something different and encouraging them that you may find an opportunity outside of academia and in industry. Now, I am not banging the drum and telling everyone to come on over to clinical research because it may not be the best fit for everyone. But what we do know is sometimes neither is working in a university setting. So what I do when I encourage my undergraduate students, my graduate students who I speak with, as well as folks who have PhDs in academia looking for a change is look for your best fit. Write down a list of things that you love to do and things that you like to do. I am capable of working with SAS and SPSS. I can do that, I'm capable, but that's not where my love is. My love is mentoring students. My love is actually going out into the community and working uh, with community members and community stakeholders, talking to folks in the community about health issues. That's what I love. So knowing that Monica has this great group here of Latinos in clinical research, I am really truly hoping that you are finding what you love and what everyone loves may not be on the clinical side. It might be on the operation side. So be open to that. It might be on the regulatory side. Be open to that. Be open to documentation. Be open to uh, the work that I do along with Johan, community engagement. Some of you may love patient recruitment. It's not one slice of the cake. Clinical research is 
huge. I know that Monica and her team have had a number of wonderful, wonderful speakers throughout all of these different series of web, uh, um, web presentations that talk to you about different types of opportunities. Be open. It doesn't look only one way. Look, I am a black woman with Caribbean heritage. You don't know this, but I'm very tall and my hair is in locks, right? So my hair is locked. It's not gonna be a relaxer tomorrow. It's not gonna be straightened out. This is my hair every single day. So what I love about the company that I work for, and please understand this, when you are doing your searches for um, companies to work for, uh, the same way you write your love language and your like language and figure out what it is that fits you best, do that same type of research with the company that you are going to work for. SiteBridge Research champions diversity. That is a deal breaker for me. That is a deal breaker. If you say you champion diversity, but your leadership looks one particular way, all white men, all white period, that doesn't tell me that you truly believe in champion diversity. And the type of work that we do at, at SiteBridge where we go into diverse communities, you better believe they click on our website and they wanna know if we are really, really dedicated to the words that we are saying. You're coming into rural areas, you're talking to black and brown people, you're saying that you love us. Hey, guess what? Our leadership reflects that. That was a deal breaker for me. It may not be the same deal breaker for you, but that was important to me. Also, another piece that's important to me, Monica, before I close out is if we're going into these communities, we definitely have to understand what is happening in the community. Social justice issues are key. If we're in the community talking to folks about health, we better truly understand the environment that folks are living in, understanding the economic issues, the environmental health issues. We need to understand um, the food scarcity issues, the violence, the domestic. We have to understand that and be able to talk about it boldly. As a Black woman uh, of Caribbean descent, being able to go into the community and truly put my arms around people and talk about issues that are of concern and importance to them, even through the lens of clinical research and clinical trials is important. You don't leave that behind you. That comes with you, right? I don't leave what I look like when I come onto any one of these webinars. You see that I am a black woman. That's me all day, every day. So if I can't speak about the challenges that are happening and celebrate the goodness that happens, then what are we really talking about? What are we really talking about? So these are key issues. I'm loving that we have this forum to talk. Thank you again, Monica and your team. You're wonderful. Um, and I'm here. I'm here and uh, looking forward to the questions that will be coming. And um, thank you so much for this opportunity this evening. No, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, amazing information. You guys 
have brought um, topics that probably sometimes uh, we don't mention or we just don't even think about. And I absolutely love that you brought it here. Very impactful. Yes, I agree. So I think I think that's one of the things that this industry is really needing. Um, you know, you see a bunch of uh, these organizations having these, you know, uh, groups that are support groups, this or that. But even then, you know, there's not really deep conversation happening of the actual topics that are needed to be discussed because it's still under organization or corporate umbrella, right? And so. I'm very happy that we not only have LICR, but we have Black Women in Clinical Research. We have all these other organizations out there that give us that platform to be able to, you know, very like bluntly talk about this because it needs to. And I appreciate you for, for saying what you said. And um, my question for you is, uh, since you say that you have a lot of, um, when academia and you mentor students, um, have you have you noticed maybe, uh, I'm assuming your student background or your mentor background is very diverse as well. It um, is. Have you have you noticed if there's a difference between uh, resource resource um, knowledge between you know the different diverse background groups when it comes to you no know, having some understanding? You know what's interesting? It's not necessarily the resources. Mm -hmm. It's breaking free of doing the same thing over and over and over again. So what I have found, and this is this is just a little a little tip, right? What I have found when I'm speaking to students, whether they have doctorates or masters or undergraduates is in their minds, one thing that they remember is I need to write a cover letter, I need to write a resume and I need to submit it to um, the HR website. So if you try to share, well, hey, take a minute to research the company. LinkedIn is a gold mine. LinkedIn will tell you if you are applying to a small company, a medium company, or a large company, right? And what type of response you will get, right? Medium and small companies are very nimble and very responsive, which is giving you a advantage of getting hired quicker. But what do I find? Oh, Dr. McGregor, I want to apply to the to the popular cheerleader. I want to apply to Merck. I want to apply to GSK. I want to apply to all of the popular. And I say, they're great companies, but they're over 10,000 employees. They're not necessarily going to get back to you quickly or at all because they're huge doing great work. Do you want to get hired quickly at a company that will embrace you, that you can learn some great things? Consider a small company or a medium-sized company. And you have your LinkedIn inbox for a reason. Write to a decision maker in the company. It's okay. They're people. They'll write you back. They'll say hello. It's okay. Try something different. So this is what I will say. It's not the resources, it's the mindset. No, 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 no. I want to write a lot of cold resumes and send off a lot of cold resumes. Why? It doesn't work great all the time. Try something different. Try something different. You'll get a different result and you'll be happy. Agreed. I'm very glad. Join organizations. Yes. Very glad. I, I've been saying <laughs> small, small is the new big since I can't remember, but not just for getting in, but also for developing your skill set. And 
if you want to impact or make the biggest impact you can, you're better off at the smaller organizations. And then as you build your skill set, you can go to the bigger organizations. So that one definitely uh, resonated with me. And the and LinkedIn have, yeah, and the networking, all of that. <laughs> all of that. Very, yeah. very good. Dan, you're singing my song, Dan. You're singing my song. Small is the new big. I've been saying that. We need to make yeah. that a meme. <laughs> Yeah, we, we tell the students in the in the academies that the best way to start is in the small clinics because they get the chance to wear all the hats and and learn everything uh, in just one place. And then from there, they can grow in the direction that the heart sings, like you just were saying, something that brings them joy or or or, or a path that, that they say, this is, this is exactly what I was looking for. Thank you again. Yeah. yeah, I think it's very important yes. because I always tell people um, do things differently. Like, don't just apply it. Go to sites. If you're looking for a job, where what city do you live in? How many research centers? Pull it up. Go to that. See if they're hiring. Just showing up. You never know if they're looking for someone. And we've hired people in our private clinic that way who have shown up. And a few weeks later, they were hired um, research too. So we're so used to doing things so structured. And we got to think outside the box. 100%. That's why LinkedIn networking organizations, you know, standing out, asking questions, getting connected. I mean, all those things are super, super important, especially right now where it's like the world's your oyster. How, how, what are you going to do to make it yours? Right. And so it's always just going above and beyond and um, thinking outside the box. Thank you so much. I really appreciate yeah, it. Thank and you I really so do want to continue this collaboration afterwards. Uh, I mean, we're going to continue on, but just so y'all are aware, we do want to reach out and see how we can work together on certain things and reach out to more people. Great. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to present our last guest today. She is Marlene. She was born in Belize in South America. It's a very small country, <laughs> uh, but she was raised in Costa Rica. So she also has a great uh, professional and personal background. Um, she's a physical therapist. She graduated in uh, Costa Rica, and then she has been working at the site. Uh, she started working at the site level. Now she is with the sponsor level, CRO level, and she started just like me as a recruiter. So here she is. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me with you guys. Thank you, Latinos in Clinical Research, and just really, really excited to be here, just sharing my journey in clinical research. Um, like Monica said, I was born in Belize, so it's a small little country in Central America. We are border with Mexico and with Guatemala. Um, but my parents were missionaries, so we literally moved all over Central America. So when I left, you know, we left Belize, we went to Honduras, we lived there for a couple of years, and we went to Panama. That's where I basically grew up in Panama. I lived there the majority of my life, around 11 years. My dad's from Panama. My mom's from Belize. So I consider myself, I think I inclined myself more to be in Panamanian just because I was there the longest. And then we moved to Costa Rica and that's where I actually studied physical therapy. I actually started physical therapy because I had an injury. I actually had to kind of learn to walk again. So I got this passion for physical therapy because I actually was treated by a physical therapist. And I said, I want to be one, you know, like that because they actually helped me and it was so impactful for me. But then I came to the U.S. As many of you know, when you're an immigrant, things just don't work out the same way. So like I didn't actually work in my field and I ended up in clinical research in 2011. 
So I've been, yeah, working in clinical research around 11 years. I started at the site level um, in recruitment. So like Monica said, literally just picking up the phone, calling, um, you know, subjects, patients, asking them, do you want to participate in a clinical trial, come into the clinic and, you know, see if you're a good, you know, candidate. So, you know, my journey has been long. I've been doing so many things in the site level. I was also like a manager for a smaller clinic, which is the same thing. Like you actually wear all these hats. You have to do like from regulatory to like spin your own blood to like ship, to, you know, to do all these things. But I think that actually helped me because I actually got like my CCRP and I had all this background. When you're like in a bigger setting, you only, you're kind of like departmentalized, right? So you don't even know everything, but when you're like in a smaller clinic, you're kind of forced to do everything. So I think that was still good in a way. And it's just a good way of like learning, especially for everybody that's trying to get into research. Um, and then when I joined like the CRO world, so I worked for a CRO, I've always worked in feasibility and site identification. So we're basically kind of like the pillars to getting, you know, sites, you know, studies up and running. Um, I'm right now working as a regional feasibility network manager for the Americas. So my team is everyone that we reach out for Latin America and, you know, North America, basically. Um, so I think that's like a good thing in the sense that I think speaking Spanish helped, you know, so that's like one perk of being a Afro-Latina. That's what I consider myself because, you know, obviously it, you know, it, it helps and it opens, you know, certain other areas. When I came to the U.S., I felt just a big kind of like pull for trying to grow because I felt like where I, when I got into the Sierra world, you just didn't see a lot of people like me, just to be honest, right? So in like my case, okay, I'm female, I'm black and I'm Hispanic and I'm Latino. It was like a three whammy, like a three neg negative. I would, I would normally say it, right? Like in, in the sense of like growing, but I've just literally, you know, navigated through and I, my desire is just to see more people like me. I can kind of like, kind of like something like Manera said, just working in this industry because we can do the same, right? And I think a lot of the things have to do with education. I think we kind of touched on that topic because if I'm being honest, when I lived in Costa Rica, when I lived in Central America, I had no idea what clinical research was. I really had no idea what it was. So what are we really doing to like educate those around us and to actually spread the word out? So like one thing I think it's super easy is people are gonna ask you, what do you do? Like I get that question answer all the time and everybody's like, so, so what is it that you really do? You know, like what is this clinical research thing? And I think even if we start with just that are around us, family, friends, we could kind of like little by little start spreading that, you know, word out, right? Because so many people are like literally blinded and they're like naive to what really clinical research is. I think even Joanne mentioned that about like the, oh, is it a lab rat? Is it like, like, you know, am I an experiment? Like, what is it that, I, you know, you're doing with me? And I think in the Latino community, that's very known as like having like that taboo. And it's kind of like just opening up their minds and actually letting them know they're actually like helping science and it's like something great for them to do. Um, but in general, I think I'm also passionate for just diversity and inclusion in general too, because I want more people to actually get the benefit of research. So because I work in feasibility, we normally have to start out with like what countries are gonna be in our model. For example, what countries are gonna be reaching out to get these um, clinical studies to and normally have the same amount all the time, right? It's normally the same. Obviously, United States will get into the mix. 
But if you call it for Latin America, just because that's like where my heart goes to, you're going to see probably Brazil, you're going to probably see Mexico, you're going to probably see Peru, you know, maybe, but like, I have, I never see Panama in there, for example, where I live for 11 years. I don't see Costa Rica there normally. It's just so rare to actually see that. So it's kind of like trying to go back to the sponsor and be like, hey, how about you add this other country into the mix, right? So it's kind of like, that's right now part of like what I'm trying to do. It's it's It takes time, but at least I feel like, okay, if it's at least like one seed, you can at least hopefully change like that mentality. Like what I wish we could have is like just field educators just out there going out to like different countries and actually showing them what actually clinical research is. It's because it's just such a powerful tool and it could just help so many of our own people. And right now it's just something that is not being utilized to its full potential. Um, but in general, that's me. I've worked in research now. I love it. I have 15 um, direct reports and that's actually my calling. I would say that this is the happiest I've been in clinical research, actually mentoring them. So I think I go around like Manair, what she's saying. My first first job was actually being a teacher. I was a teacher for kindergarten, first and second grade to teach English in Costa Rica, but I didn't become a teacher, but I just love that mentoring and just helping and like talking, like I don't have an issue with doing that. So I feel like right now I'm like really whole if you call it that way, I work a lot, yes, but I just love that part of like helping others and like just sharing my knowledge with them. Um, and knowing that I came from, you know, Central America, knowing that I came from not even knowing what clinical research was. So actually now helping others is just, it's great. And it's something that everybody can do. So that's just something that I feel like if you put your mind to it, you're gonna be able to do it. It's just baby steps to get to where you need to get to. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> Very amazing story. Yeah, I, 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 I feel connected in different ways with each of you because, uh, I mean, with all this uh, amazing information and with all the knowledge that, I mean, each of us is a different world, right? So <laughs> that makes us extremely special. But uh, hearing your background, your stories, and that is really motivating. Uh, obviously for us here and for everybody that listens to this um, videos. So that's why for us it's so important to bring that different backgrounds and, and tell the story. We don't even ask before anything because we don't want to, to spoil th this moment and, and to make it genuine for everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I wanted to... Uh because we were talking about this earlier, but Marlene is a singer. She has a CD out. I wanted everyone oh, to know that. Awesome. Oh, wow. Thank you. Oh, we'll send us information, we'll post it up. <laughs> it's definitely another one of my passions is music. So that's, I, I kind of mix that with it too. So yeah, I do have a Christian album that came out this year. Amazing, wow, wow. thank yes. you. Wow. Thank you for mentioning that, that's awesome. Your background is, very great. I mean, honestly, um, and just to kind of echo what Alexander just stated, um, you know, all of y'all's background, everything that y'all are saying today is very impactful. Um, I'm really excited to actually post this up for those that are not able to be present today. Um, it's very clear that, you know, um, whether, you know, regardless of your background, uh, all minority backgrounds, there's just so much work to be done. And, and I think we all realize that it's just, it's heavy on the communication, uh, focusing on those areas and getting those, you know, uh, education resources, uh, everything we can out there, right, to to educate people and to spread the word. 
um, and we really appreciate everything it is that y'all are doing. And, and we hope that, you know, after even after here today that we can keep the communication going and see how we can work together to also, you know, um, continue to spread the word and maybe do more things with each other in regards to helping the communities. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, that, so I uh, think it... Go ahead, Mon, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead, Ashley. Well, I was just going to mention how, you know, um, you mentioned about, you know, uh, sponsors, zeros, et cetera, being able to clinical trials, reaching out to different countries and usually all the same countries. I mean, we've actually interviewed uh, one or two CROs here, one from Colombia. You know, Monica uh, knows him a little bit uh, better, but um, I mean, you know, they're open, they're willing, they're eager to get, you know, these trials to their to their country, right? And and it's it's important that we find ways to get this communication over to these bigger organizations because you know, if, if you have Brazil and you have Mexico and a few others that are getting this access, there should be no reason why we can't get this and spread it throughout all of Latin America and Central America. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to make mention of that. And, and we know yeah, that- Yeah, I was actually going to ask something related. <laughs> but I'm saying like, we know like, okay, like the, you know, the drug might may, may like work differently in someone that's in different regions. So that's my thing is like, at the end of the day is like how effective is really this drug at the end of the time, right? So it's like, if you really want to talk about diversity, you really need to expand and like open up like our horizons. And I know, a lot of the times like regulatory is like slower, right? In certain countries, so it's kind of like, okay, this is gonna make my trial like not be up and running as quick as I want. But like, what do you really want? It's like, do you want the faster route? Do you want like the real global route? So that's like one thing that it's like, it's just in my head and it's just really education is gonna take time, but I think we're kind of gearing to the right steps, but hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, and the same thing, not only, not, not only like looking global, but you can only look really just in like in the US too. It's like going to those like minority communities, going to those areas, like there's certain indications that are only like, like I think Joanne mentioned, okay, diabetes is mainly for people that are Hispanic, right? But there's other like rare disease where are more prevalent like in a certain type of like race. And if we don't even have those into like our pool, <laughs> what are we really testing or how are we really getting to know if it's, you know, true effect, but, but yeah. Yeah, and I actually wanted yeah. to add, because I really liked what you said. Um, you called it, we need more field agents. Is that what you called it? That's what I, that's my Yes, I wish we had more of those. And I hope we can get to that point, because I agree 100%. Field educators, we just need to make that. How about field we? educators? Yes. We call them at Cybridge clinical trial champions, people that are out there uh, working on behalf of you know, educating on behalf of, of all of us, just community leaders, et that are making a commitment. Uh, can I, um, before, I know the time is getting close, but I wanted to talk about the Bridging the Gap for Clinical Trials Art Challenge and Competition. Let me know when I can do that before we go. Uh, please before go ahead. You, before you do that, can I say something? Because I think Claudia Ayala mentioned something there. And I think, in terms of like the education, I know like we were talking about educating like our communities, but like I feel sometimes we just don't have enough people that are educated to actually be PIs or be sub-Is, for example, right? So I think that's like the other issue that we have is we just don't have people that look like us or like, so there's no like, you don't feel comfortable participating in a clinical trial just because there's no one that looks like 
Monica is that clinic or in that area. So I think that's like another part of education is kind of like, how do we actually get people to actually study, you know, this industry and actually become a doctor and become a sub and actually have their own clinics to actually like bring those people in? Because there's like cultural beliefs are different too. Like, you know, certain religious, you know, change differences too. So like all of that part is like still like, how do we get there? And I know we, we talk so much about it, it's like, what are we really doing to get there? Um, that just always is like, just rounding in my mind. We just really need to feel trust, that trust, that connection with someone else in order for us to actually step in and actually participate in these studies. But yeah, yeah sorry, and no, that. and that, that's it. That's a serious, it's, it's a really good topic because I mean, that's part of, I think why we also went towards creating um, the University of Clinical Research because one of the things that we saw was that a lot of the clinical research coordinators were um, uh, IMGs, right? And and they were coming from uh, Latin America and from all over the world, actually. And the issue was that well, they're trying to look for work and it's, you know, the immigration and all these red tape lines and all these things making it difficult to be able to facilitate these educated professionals, right? Regardless of where you're from, you're educated, you're going through schooling, let's try to find a way, right? And that's why if y'all haven't seen it, we do have a podcast where we had a, uh, an immigration lawyer come in where she's, she, was a, she was a lawyer um, in South America and then again became a lawyer here and is now helping uh, IMGs um, and getting work into clinical research in general. But it's a, it's a big conversation that needs to be had with, you know, these bigger organizations and helping facilitate, uh, again, site ownership, right? Um, and all sorts of things like that, that, you know, they're able to do. And it, it like you talked about earlier about the whole issue of, um, you know, having PIs that look and speak like us. So it's also, you know, how about you collaborate, what, regardless of the background, whether, you know, again, like uh, uh, African-American, Latinos, I mean, all, there's so many organizations and backgrounds out there, but these organizations, well, how about you collaborate with us, right? Not just us specifically, but uh, minority organizations so that we can then focus on these associations, these medical associations to get access to physicians that actually want to learn about clinical research. They just don't know where to go or what to do or all these things like that, right? You're just not working in the gap. We're talking about the issues, but we're not trying to facilitate a pathway to correct these issues. And so again, uh, another very deep topic that is not being touched on um, that, you know, again, why we, I'm so happy that we have organizations um, that are popping up now that we're talking about this. So hopefully we can get that through and across. Um, but yes, sorry, Monica, yeah. I think you were going to say something. I apologize. <laughs> I mean, true equity is uh, yeah. ownership at like in the purest sense. So one of the reasons why we have this channel is to hopefully inspire entrepreneurship uh, from from Latinos and specifically clinicians, you know, starting your own clinic, grassroots approach. We all know this is what works best. Go ahead, Monica. Sorry. No, I was just going to say to, uh, if everybody, if anybody has any questions, um, and and also I, I think we I saw some questions already in the chat, so I wanted to read some of these questions. Um, in the meantime, if anybody feel uh, feel free, please to ask them out loud. <laughs> and I know that Joanne wanted to say something. I'm sorry, I cut her off. <laughs> she wanted to talk about. I guess meanwhile, we're waiting. You could say that. Too. Oh yes. So yes, I wanted to tell everyone that at Cybridge, where um, some time ago, it was at the beginning of 
at the end of last year, we were thinking exactly about how can we educate, how can we disseminate information about clinical trials and, and create awareness in a form that's interesting and innovative. And one of our consultants, Alison Callum, she has a, a co-founder of a company called uh, Clinical Ambassador. She said, why don't we have an art contest Art is, is powerful at generating conversations, at educating, at something impacting behavior. And we were all in love with the idea. So we started a contest called Bridging the Gap for Clinical Trials. So I'm going to post that in there. We're um, looking for artists or anyone that's inspired to tell us how they feel that a clinical trial or a therapy or something that was made possible due to a clinical trial, medication. I give the example of my children. I mean, I'm so grateful for the EpiPen because we don't have a cure for uh, food allergies. So if you know if somebody that can uh, see to the visual arts or music or the spoken word, and they can tell us about their experience with, uh, a medication or a clinical trial, please encourage them to participate. We have three main, the three main categories and each has uh, a first price of $2,000, second price of $1,500 and a third price of $500. So check it out. I just posted it on the chat, um, bridgingthegapct.com and uh, please disseminate the word. We're just thinking that people will just be we have some of the entries that are so powerful, and I think that's a good way to learn. And if you do, I love that. <laughs> Marlene, consider the music entry. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to see if I could write a song about research. We'll see, and I'll send it. Yeah. That would be so much fun. Yay! Yes. That would be great. It will be Dan Tom. <laughs> okay, so I found one question. How can I M I M G become CRC and how hard is to find these jobs? How can I'm sorry, what was it? An IMG become a CRC and how hard is to find these jobs? Who wants to answer this question? <laughs> I am sorry with all the acronyms. What's an IMG? Does anyone know? So what these are the do doctors, yeah, doctors that are trained overseas that come to United States uh, to become our, I mean, if they get involved in research. Yeah, um, it's an international. They started as a international medical, medical graduate. Um, oh, I see. Okay. I mean, I answer this all the time. So somebody else, if they want to. <laughs> yeah. Free. There's a lot of good ideas. <laughs> I know you just mentioned that, right? Like how like actually the, you know, like you know, in clinical research has like some type of like bridge program kind of in a way too. But I think the biggest thing is not focusing only on being a CRA. And I think that's like a big thing. I personally, when I was, ex I was a clinical research coordinator. So I actually worked at the, you know, the site level as a clinical research coordinator too. And I think the main thing that we just had in our mind is like, okay, from a CRC, I need to go to a CRA. I don't know why we have that mentality for some reason, but like, that's just kind of like this, you know, block that we just say like, okay, that's kind of like the natural path, but that's not really the natural path, to be honest. Again, you just have to find what you really want to do. Um, when Air said, just start with like smaller, smaller, you know, 
site, smaller groups, and then just try to like jump in from there. So it's really just getting your feet in the door. And I know it's hard to get your feet in the door, but again, networking is a huge thing. We kind of mentioned that again, you know, we could put our LinkedIn like files. I mean, I'm glad to like, you know, do referrals for anything like that too. Like just, they normally will check whoever, you know, is inside of the, the company first before someone that's just coming in from outside. But I think that's something else that's, that's big. I mean, it's sad to say that you, you know, who you know normally helps, but it, it's definitely something that can help in a way. Um, but I just really think it's just like learning and like opening up like the job, like when there's like job openings, you know, like actually double click on it and like read through it. Cause sometimes you're like, I don't know what that title is, right? But maybe like when I actually read the description, you're like, oh, I can actually do that. That looks like close enough to something that I could do. And then another thing that I would say is, you don't have to have like 100% the description that they're looking for. That's like something like big for me because I wouldn't have thought that I was going to become like a feasibility manager at one point in my life. I'm like, I don't even think I could really get that job. And I got that job, you know, like and I didn't feel, I didn't feel like the full description of like what they were looking for, but at least like show up, go to the interview and you never know. So I feel like don't close the door yourself like let the door close on you, but like actually go in. So that's just something that I always say, no, que no cierre la puerta tú, que te la cierren. Yeah. I agree. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 money. I was going to go to the next question. So I, <laughs> I was going to say that uh, as a CRC, I think you have, you said like a very solid foundation for your career in research. From there, you can go in basically in any direction you want. So it's, it's, I think for the IMGs, it's a great opportunity. We know even IMGs that have become medical monitors. So that tells us a lot. Yeah, it looks like somebody, Rocio posted also medical scientists. They've gone into those positions too. Yeah, I think I think this is the only industry where the doctors from overseas or train overseas internationally, even that they are not accredited here, their knowledge is still um, important and it's still uh, it's going to count still in your CV or it's going to count towards your career growth. Um, that that's the, I think that's one of the beauties of of uh, research. That even if you have, if you graduated overseas, your bachelor's or your education is still count. It's not going to go to the trash can. They also can be great raters too on psychiatry CNS studies. Well, yes. We have, sorry, <laughs> we have medical our, writers. Sorry, buddy. I'm so sorry. Uh, um, all right, we have our last question from Rocio. Um, how do y'all think we can increase vaccine acceptance in our communities in the time of boosters, et cetera? That, that is a loaded question, I think. Um, Judy, I didn't get to read your response. Um, I don't know if you want to just kind of vocalize. Yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, I work in a large Latino community. It's 85% Latinos. We're close to a border town into Mexico and even dealing with COVID, uh, boosters, vaccines, um, even within our own practice, you know, private clinic and research studying, I would say 99% of us did get it. And there's that 1% that didn't for whatever reason. Um, and I think it goes back to the educational aspect. Um, the clinics that are providing these vaccines, do they have the educational information they need to give to their patients? Are they talking to their patients? 
patients correctly about these. The importance is the resources out there for patients to understand these, to make that decision. Same thing, you know, that we're struggling with clinical research. I would say it's the same with vaccines. Uh, is the information out there for people to understand? Or are they just being told they have to take get this vaccine, but why? Tell me more about it. What? Where's the information? Where's the background on it? So I can make that decision. Um, so yeah, it's tough. <laughs> yeah, at a hybrid clinic I worked at in a rural area, um, there was a lot of hesitation, even just with the flu vaccination. And one of the things that I saw that I personally resonate with is because um, I have a, uh, I have an autoimmune disorder. So when I'm being told about anything, um, I want to know both. I want to know what are the positives? What are the negatives? And how do those uh, reference to me and my particular health, not just a general resource, right? Where, you know, get CDC and things like that. I want, uh, if I'm going to my physician, right? I want them to be able to tell me specifically, well, based off on your background and your health, you know, and your past experiences, this or that, like, I, how do I feel about these particular things? And I feel like most of this, most of uh, what I've experienced uh, when I've gone to my general physicians and or where I used to work, there's not a lot of that happening. It's more of just, this is a vaccination. You really should get it. Um, and here's some information. It's it's like five minute, 10 minute sessions. It's not in detail. And then you have the, the aspect of the language barrier. And then also, you know, the whole thing of, you know, does my doctor even look like me? Do they even care about me to even take the time to even tell me the truth? Do I believe them? Do I trust them? Are they just trying to pass me by as another patient? So there's a lot that goes into that. And I think it goes back to what was mentioned about having, you know, bilingual physicians, having physicians look like you and actually be, you know, um, ingrained in the community, right? Because if they're not, it, it's very easy to just say, oh, well, it's just another doctor and they're just passing me up after 20 minute session, right? And so there's just so much that goes into that. And I think that that's why we need to facilitate education with these medical associations um, for all minority organizations, because uh, we need to bring our knowledge of the community to these physicians, um, because after four, six, seven, eight years of education, there is and sometimes can be a disconnect to their community, right? And so, because it's all heavily based on education as opposed to the roots or grassroots, right? I think another way is collaborating with community. There's, uh, for example, faith-based organizations. I know that a lot of communities have a lot of um, respect for the opinions of their faith-based um, communities and their leaders. So that's a, an avenue to go through. Um, I know we've had heard at the clinic there was this very successful um, pharmacy that was vaccinating a lot of Hispanics. And we're like, well, what, what's happening there? Well, they had uh, a member of the pharmacies that's uh, the pharmacy that spoke Spanish. So people were able to get their questions answered. So thinking, and this is one of the things that we do at Cybridge is that we're paying attention to when we go to sites are the sites, do they have people that represent the people that they're serving? That's important to us because again, that creates a lot of um, um, trust. It starts creating trust when people like you are represented in the places where you're gonna get um, health information. So the same thing in other places, like the pharmacy. I hadn't even you know, thought about that. Of course, you have questions for the pharmacies and if they wanna, if they can answer them for you, you're more willing to probably go ahead and get vaccinated. 
I have a question for uh, Marlene, if I can. Um, hi, Marlene, how are you? Uh, Chris, I've been awfully quiet, but I'm curious, what advice could you give to sites or people that work at sites that would benefit them in filling out feasibility questionnaires that would make them more appealing? <laughs> well, for me, you just have to be real because the thing that happens a lot to us is you get sites that complete feasibility questionnaires and they obviously like inflate the numbers. And then if we go back to the same site or if that site gets selected and you're actually not able to, to you know, to, to give us what we were actually like hoping, you know, it's kind of like, okay, did they lie? And I know there's certain, depends on the study, I think, we spoke with Dan about that because I was in one of his podcasts and we kind of like spoke with that because sometimes there's studies that are very difficult. And the way how we're looking at it, I think every study is getting like more and more complex <laughs> as the years go by. Right. So it's kind of like do not like be real, like with what you're actually completing and try to do it as fast as you can. And if you actually have questions, get back to us, because for us, like I'm in charge of like a group of people that are actually calling the site to try to, for them to actually complete the questionnaires. And you would, for Latin America, it's it's great because they answer so quickly. <laughs> but like for the U.S., it's just normally it's some, you know, certain studies, it's just like very dragging and it takes so long. And don't be afraid to like ask back and say, hey, have you heard back? Have you made a decision? Because sometimes just sponsors take obviously longer to like make their decisions and what sites are actually going to participate. But don't be scared of like actually getting back to that person that reached out to you originally and let them know, hey, what's the process? How are we going and how are we doing? Because we, we still need, you, you need to know, right? And sometimes we don't know either. So that's probably why we're not letting you know. But my, my recommendation would be just be truthful to what you're actually completing and try to do it like in a timely manner because the quicker they come through, the quicker you're going to be seen. And, you know, just, you know, keep that communication with whoever is that person that was actually reaching out to you. Thank you. But I, I have a follow-up. I, sorry, Monica. Go ahead. I, I no, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. So I've been told by a number of CRAs, I, I am a site owner. Um, okay. And they have said to exaggerate your numbers as all sites do. So if you wanna if you wanna if you wanna be considered for a study, you should exaggerate your numbers. Now, how do you how do you, as the person examining these questionnaires, determine you know, the site's probably being more realistic or, I mean, you have one site that's saying 20 and most other sites are saying 10, right? Yeah. So, I mean, is that- And then you're going to be like, you're going to be like an outlier, right? Basically. Right. And it depends, and depends on the, depends on the, the, the CRO, because I've worked at several CROs, so everyone looks at it differently, but some of them actually will take like an average. So if you have like, you know, 10 sites and the majority of them are seeing 10, more than likely we could do like a reduction factor that's needed. Right. Depending if you're, you're literally like completely out of like, you know, the norm, but where we're being. But there's others that actually don't do that and actually, you know, go to the sites that they normally go to like over and over again, because you already have that relationship with that site. So you kind of like trust that what they're saying is true, because we've seen like your metrics from like past um, studies. Yeah. But sure. it also, but it so it really depends on the CRO and like the relationship we have the, with them and actually the type of study. So it's just so many variables to be honest, but to me, you always have to be truthful because at the end of the day, if you tell me you're going to give me 20 patients and then the study opens up and you gave me five, that's still going to look bad at the end of the day because that, oh, gets, you know, <laughs> gets, gets stored. Right. So, um, yeah, that's, and we could, we could, we, I, I posted my LinkedIn, um, no, there we could reach out and talk after if we need oh, to. Oh, great. Thank you. You're welcome.
Thank you. I, I, I would like to piggyback on uh, Chris's question. So what it takes for a site outside United States, like for example, Colombia or El Salvador, or who knows, somewhere in Latin America or any, any place in the country to be considered. Like for example, because we have some relationships with some clinics and even with a CRO in Latin America, and I'm sure they will be very interested on studies or doing studies with uh, studies that are here in United States. So like I mentioned that before, right? Because it depends on the study and they're gonna tell you like what's the framework or what the, what's what the country mix that you're gonna be utilizing. That's like a name that we use. So if we're, if actually Colombia or Mexico is not even in the country mix, they're just, they're just not gonna be considered at all because they're just not in that model for that particular um, indication. And normally they do studies of like, okay, like if I'm gonna do a vaccine study, is it, you know, is it, does it happen a lot more in, you know, that particular indication? Does it, do you see patients like with that in Mexico versus Costa Rica, you know, like variables like that. So that's kind of like outside of our control. Now, if that country is actually in our country mix, so if like Mexico is actually going to be considered for this breast cancer trial, for example, then that's where it gets, if you're in our database, then it's obviously easier. For Latin America, it's pretty, it's pretty, I wouldn't say easy, but it's, I think it's a, it's a better way to actually get into the trials because there's not that many sites, right? So if they actually have the population, more than likely you'll get selected to be in, you know, in the trial. So it's just really knowing, like being in the database of like different, you know, CROs in order for them to actually be there. That way, when a study comes up that has that country, you actually could get reached out to that, you know, to that person. Okay, so how can they get in the database? Can they just register in the website as a site or how do they do it? Yeah, and then again, every CRO is different, but I know a lot of them have like a page where you could actually like register and enter information in there and that gets stored, right? So it's like, so the feasibility department will be able to like see like new entries that could come through. Um, or like you reach out to someone that actually works in feasibility. That happens to me a lot, I get emails just random emails, you know, where they're like, oh, I'm okay. this guy and I actually want to do this. And I'm like, okay. So, you know, you can't, you can't, <laughs> but that happens okay. a lot um, to me in particular, just because, you know, because. Okay. So the, the, don't be surprised if you start getting <laughs> lots of messages after this video. <laughs> that happened to me when I went to SCRS. It was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Feasibility is a hot area, and I and I, I totally understand, you know. But um, but we just have to have, at the end of the day, good sites, and just give chance to the ones that are smaller. And I, I'm a big advocate about that because a lot of times sponsors tend to go to the bigger ones, right? Because you already know, okay, we're sure that they have the patients, you know. But sometimes they're so over, like saturated that they can't even get to to that particular study because they have so many. But that's just. Again, we go back to education. It's all about education <laughs> to look at it though. That's right. Rocio actually added something. He says many of the feasibility decisions are made or on commercial strategies, meaning their participation might depend on the on whether the treatment yep. will be market in that country. Yep. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So you always have to like depend when it's like global, we always have that question. Depending on what it is, we actually have to look into that country if the drug is approved already if that would be reimbursed like there's all that pre work done you know before that 
then get selected. So what Julie said is. I think we need to do a webinar on that. I know that's, that's yeah, really I, useful information. Yeah. Thank you. I, 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 was, I was thinking that we, we, we must do a webinar with each of them separately <laughs> and, and give you guys, each of you one full hour to talk about your um, research work and, and, and all the tips and, and all the information that you guys have, because obviously, as everybody noticed, we have three experts. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. Yes, I thank agree. You. And our retention has been, if we were a study, this would be great. We've kept the same <laughs> viewers the whole hour over and hour. Uh, over and hour. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> topics we need to cover more. <laughs> well, we thank you guys so much for being here, yeah. for the thank work you. that you're doing, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here with us today, to provide this information as a resource for individuals to hear today, as well as whoever you know, watches the recordings later. For those of you that are watching the recordings later, please reach out, network. If you have any questions for any of our guests here today, please do not hesitate. Um, remember networking is key, it is everything. Um, if there's any way at all that we can continue to collaborate, uh, LACR with each of you all to help you in any of y'all's projects or endeavors, please let us know. Um, we're happy to do so. And then those for you that are watching, if you feel that there's something that needs to be discussed that we you would a topic you'd like to bring about or anything like that, please let us know. Um, do not hesitate to reach out. But thank you all so, so much again. Um, appreciate everybody and everything you're doing and uh, to all the members who are here today and for those who watch later. Thank you.